And now I'd like to introduce Mr. Paul Starr. Paul Starr holds the Stewart Chair in Communications and Public Affairs at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School. He is the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect magazine and was a White House senior advisor for President Clinton's proposed healthcare reform plan in 1993. He received the 1984 Pulitzer Prize and the Bancroft Prize in American history for the social transformation of American medicine and the 2005 Goldsmith Book Prize for the creation of the media. His new book is Remedy and Reaction, The Peculiar American Struggle Over Healthcare Reform. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Paul Starr. Well, thank you very much, Dulce, and thanks to Zocalo, and thanks to all of you for being here tonight, making your way through the daily Carmageddon in this fabled city. <laughs> the United States stands out in healthcare in several unhappy ways. Not only do we spend a lot more on healthcare than any other rich country, not only do we have more than 50 million people without health insurance, we've also been fighting over this issue for nearly a century in no other Western country. Are there such persistent, basic, bitter divisions over the question of whether there should be public responsibility for the costs of illness. Only in the United States do conservative parties equate public financing of health care with a loss of freedom. There have been several moments during our history in the past century when it seemed as though we might resolve these questions on a bipartisan basis. When I first became interested in these matters as a student in the early 1970s, the president was Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon had a proposal for universal health insurance. Senator Kennedy had a different proposal for universal health insurance. Most observers said it was just a matter of time when uh, we'd finally get uh, a settlement. It, it was just around the corner, in fact. Many people expected it. Then came Watergate, and that moment was lost. And then, from decade to decade, the costs went up a lot more than in other countries. The number of uninsured kept going up. And the battles over the issue became more and more rancorous. Why did that happen in the United States? It's really, it's a, it's a, it's a really tragic story of the politics of the last several decades. Um, now, a lot of people have theories about why the United States didn't follow the course uh, that other countries have, and uh, uh, I think there's some merit to some of these other views. I have my own explanation. My explanation is a historical explanation. History is, for me, the only way of making sense of an institution that, from the standpoint of its results, doesn't make a lot of sense at all. And in a way, what I have is a two-part explanation. It's first about how the United States got off the track of development that other countries followed in the early 20th century. And then it's about how the United States ensnared itself in what I call the American health policy trap. And the trap was a kind of step-by-step -step process. We enacted a variety of partial measures to deal with different groups and different aspects of the problem. We created a, a, a tax subsidy for people with employment-based insurance and created the Medicare program and so forth. And these programs layered one on top of another have added to the cost of the system and they have made it increasingly complicated. But they've also done several things that have made that system very hard to change. Uh, first of all, they tremendously enriched the healthcare industry and made it really hard to change a lot of things. They, these programs did protect a majority of Americans, not everyone, but a majority and many of the, most, the best organized groups in our society. And third, the measures that we took um, 
buried a lot of the costs. People don't actually see those costs as clearly as they might if they had to pay one lump sum bill a month for all the costs of healthcare. And then finally, and this is one of the most complicated and I think more, most interesting parts, and in some ways most disappointing parts of what happened, um, we gave many groups, people with good employer benefits, veterans, the elderly who have Medicare, we gave many groups moral reasons as to why they deserved the good health care they have. And at least some of the people in those groups came to think that they deserved it, they earned it, and other people haven't. And why should they be taxed to pay for those other people who haven't earned their health care? Now, in other Western countries where health care is more a matter of right, you don't have to earn your health care. But the policies that we adopted sent that message, communicated that message, and I think they're partly responsible for the very bitter, vituperative aspect of a lot of the politics that have unfolded over the last several decades. So some people explain what happened in the United States on the basis of American individualism. Americans are self-reliant. They don't, they don't expect or want government to do things for them. Well, Americans are self-reliant, but you know, they like Medicare and Social Security. How, how is it that we never hear the phrase socialized education, <laughs> right? And we have public financing for schools. Nobody says that is, well, some people may, but most people don't think it's a loss of freedom to have public education. Well, that partly goes back to the 19th century. Americans were worried about, uh, for example, all those immigrants coming in, and it'd be a good thing if they they sent their kids to schools, schools Americanized them. And so we have public schools. I, I'm not sure that if we hadn't inherited public schools from the 19th century, I'm not sure that in the current ideological climate we could actually get public schools today. But the institutions from the past have helped to shape the way Americans think about education. History really matters. History lives in our minds, affects the way we understand our values. Yes, Americans are individualistic, they're also egalitarian. Both those values compete. But it's not as though people resolve the tensions by sitting alone and reflecting philosophically about them. What really happens is that different groups try to mobilize passions on behalf of different values. It's, it's not just that we have competing forces in American society, we have competing forces within ourselves. And the groups really are trying to pull on those strings from different sides. That, that's how politics gets fought out. And, um, and that's why the history matters. That's why the history matters. Why going back and seeing how, how did Americans come to think about healthcare in the particular way that they have. So, I can uh, look back at this history of the last century and imagine it as a historical drama in three acts. The first act is the first half of the 20th century. Three scenes. First scene is around the time of World War I. The second is during the 1930s, during the New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt. And the third is under Harry Truman, under President Harry Truman in the 1940s. The first scene back in the time of World War I, uh, that was the first moment when groups brought forward proposals for a government health care program. It was at the state level in those days. These were programs that were modeled on the kind that had already been well established in Europe, in Germany, in England, and other countries, Germany in particular. See, that was, turned out to be really important. The opponents, for example, the opponents here in California, there was a referendum in California on this issue, and the opponents said this was a plot by the Kaiser. This was an insidious idea from abroad. And they succeeded in that campaign in defeating health insurance in New York State. It almost passed, passed the assembly in New York, but got stopped in the Senate. Kind of interesting to speculate what would have happened had New York passed a health insurance proposal, you know? 
one of their governors later got elected president. Franklin Roosevelt was the governor. If he'd had that experience in New York, who knows what he might have done as president. So now we'll move to scene two during the, the New Deal. That scene should probably be in the Oval Office where the Committee on Economic Security is bringing in the proposal for what would become the Social Security program. And that proposal, the, the committee really wanted to include health care. And perhaps in his heart, President Roosevelt also wanted health care part of that too, but he was worried it'd be hard to pass the Social Security bill. He knew the American Medical Association was going to fight it. And so he said, well, let's leave that till later. Let's leave health insurance to later. He never did get back to it. He was preparing a program in 1944, just at the time he died, preparing a speech on health insurance. And when Harry Truman became president, he inherited that program that had been developed by Roosevelt's advisors, and he was the one who put it forward. And what happened in the late 1940s? Well, actually very similar to what happened in the period of World War I. The opponents said, this is a an insidious foreign idea. Now it wasn't Germany, it was the Soviet Union. But again, the idea was that uh, this concept of socialized medicine uh, was, was a, a way for a whole enemy ideology to establish itself in the United States. By the end of Act One, in our play, two things have happened. One, the opponents of health insurance, who initially were insurance companies and the American Medical Association, they have developed a script, a script of opposition. They've elevated their own group interests into concerns about the American way. They've represented this idea of socialized medicine as being foreign and as being a threat. And they've really gotten a lot of traction on that. The other thing that's happened in, as a result of, uh, of Act One of our play is that a void has been created. There's been no government program that's developed, and so instead, there are various private alternatives that are developing in place of a government program. In particular, employers during the 30s and 40s are beginning to provide health insurance as a fringe benefit. And so the whole system of private employer-based insurance is developing. And in Act Two, that system gets established. And Act Two is the setting of that trap that I talked about a moment before, the American health policy trap. And the first scene in Act Two should actually be um, in the offices of the Social Security Administration. And around the table, there are people, names like Wilbur and Bob and various other, Victor. And they're, they're saying, what do we do? Um, the, the Truman National Health Insurance Plan has been defeated, uh, and they have the idea, let's drop back and try to at least to get a hospital insurance program for the elderly. We can piggyback that on the social security system. And it was a retreat, and it was also an idea about how to move forward. The hope was that if they could get that, then Americans would see what a good program that was, and it could become the basis of a universal health insurance system. It didn't work out that way. In scene two, uh, we have Lyndon Johnson in the White House, and uh, he's probably on the phone, uh, probably on the phone with somebody named Wilbur. It could be either Wilbur Cohen, his aide, and later the Secretary of uh, Health Education and Welfare, uh, or it could be Wilbur Mills. Wilbur Mills was the powerful chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. The two Wilburs, you know, if this was really a play written by a dramatist, you wouldn't have two characters with the same name, much less Wilbur. Anyway, the two Wilburs were the central negotiators of the uh, legislation that became the Medicare and the Medicaid programs. And um, they have been so burned over the years. They've been so spooked by the opposition of the American Medical Association and other groups that they are willing to make almost any concession to get that legislation through. And they really give away the store. They include such generous provisions for paying doctors and hospitals that these programs end up costing a lot more money 
than anybody thought beforehand. And that becomes part of the trap because instead of being able to build on that foundation, in many ways it becomes an obstacle to achieving the aims that the visionaries had in the first place. Well, Act Two comes to a climax in the early 1970s. As I mentioned before, Nixon had a proposal for health insurance, and so did Kennedy, and there were uh, movements, really, in the direction of agreement in that period. Quite remarkable, really. I mean, if you look at the Nixon plan from 1974, it was to the left of the Clinton health plan or, or you know, what the Republicans call Obamacare. It, it's, really, uh, it's really quite amazing as a sort of evidence of how politics has changed over the last several decades. But um, the Watergate crisis um, made it impossible to reach an agreement. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a sociologist. I hesitate to uh, put such importance on the particular fates of individual political leaders. But Rich, the collapse of Richard Nixon's presidency and simultaneously the collapse of the role of Wilbur Mills. Wilbur Mills had been the central uh, uh, negotiator in Congress for many important pieces of legislation. And some of you who are old enough may remember that Wilbur Mills at that time was having an affair with a striptease dancer and he ended up in the tidal basin in a car and, and that happened just at the time when he might have been negotiating an agreement. <laughs> so Act 2 concludes again with failure like, like Act 1. Well, Act 3 is about the escape from the health policy trap, but I have to put a question mark there. Can't be sure we really have escaped from the health policy trap. The first uh, part of, uh, uh, of the third act uh, is the kind of lead up to um, the, uh, the Clinton uh, health plan in 1993. And during the 80s and early 90s, the healthcare crisis was intensifying. Healthcare costs were growing far more rapidly than earnings in this period. That's actually uh, sort of a, been a characteristic um, trigger uh, for uh, public discussion of healthcare. Um, people's uh, earnings are just not keeping pace with the cost of healthcare, and there are these moments uh, when, when the crisis intensifies. And if you look at the public opinion polls from 1990 to 1993, there was an overwhelming agreement that there was a fundamental crisis in healthcare, that the system needed to be reconstructed. There was a negative consensus, but there was no positive consensus about what to do. And the Clinton uh, uh, battle, the battle over the Clinton health plan, which I was uh, involved in, began as so many of these episodes have, with a lot of optimism and energy and belief that something, in fact, was going to happen. There was, by this time, the physicians and the American Medical Association were no longer the lead opponents. The Journal of the American Medical Association said there was an aura of inevitability of health, uh, that health care reform was going to get passed. This was in 1992. And uh, uh, really, the, this was the, the common wisdom, the conventional wisdom of the time. It had to happen. Uh, the costs were unsustainable. How could it possibly go on uh, as, it, uh, as it was going on? Uh, but um, you know uh, what happened uh, in the end. Uh, the early uh, uh, momentum was broken and uh, the effort collapsed. Um, there are several things about that story that stand out. Um, I mentioned there was no positive consensus. There was no consensus among Democrats between the White House and the Congress. There was no consensus 
between the Senate and the House. There was no consensus within the Senate between the Finance Committee and the Health uh, Committee. There was no consensus, again, among the uh, uh, various House committees. There, was, uh, there were divisions. This is just among the Democrats, everywhere you looked. And that became a critical obstacle to um, not only to passing the Clinton plan, but to passing anything. That's why, in the end, nothing passed in 1993-94. In addition, something else happened in that period. And it involved really much broader uh, developments uh, than healthcare alone. At the very beginning, in the early 90s, there were quite a few moderate Republicans who were interested in passing some kind of legislation. The lead Senate Republican, Senator John Chafee of Rhode Island, uh, was uh, a very serious uh, a supporter of uh, reform efforts. He had his own legislation. There was, at that time, a division between Democrats and Republicans. Democratic proposals, by this time, emphasized an employer mandate, a requirement for employers to pay for health care. By the way, that, that had been part of the Nixon proposal back in the 70s. So now the Democrats had, finally, had accepted Nixon's approach. Okay, we'll have an employer mandate. Republicans said, no, 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 that's way too much government. Their uh, position instead called for an individual mandate, a requirement that individuals pay for health care. That was the more, that was, that was the path of individual responsibility. That was the, a path that was a more market-oriented path. That's how they presented it at that time. Um, and uh, so there were these divisions, but again, at the beginning of the debate over the Clinton uh, health plan, there was some sense that you know, maybe there'd be, in the end, a negotiation. And a critical turn happened in that whole process. Uh, and it's um, uh, uh, the, 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 the emblematic event was a memorandum written by uh, Republican strategist Bill Kristol. Uh, that uh, said no compromise with Democrats. It would be far better if Clinton were completely humiliated, if he failed utterly at this effort. And um, that was a real turning point. Um, many Republicans who had offered cooperation withdrew their cooperation. And um, uh, by the end of the process, uh, there was, um, uh, there was uh, you know, a completely unified uh, Republican bloc uh, opposing anything. So you had disunity among the Democrats, eventually unity among the Republicans, unity in opposition, and no success. Now, I'm not, since I was involved in the effort, perhaps it seems I'm excusing um, those of us who helped to shape that plan. I'm not. We made lots of mistakes. Um, uh, and um, uh, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no excusing it. The whole strategy, the idea that uh, that we were going to overcome the opposition um, by mixing together uh, managed competition with universal health insurance and uh, controls on expenditures, the the approach that we dreamed could be a basis for compromise didn't really have that potential. Um, okay, we're still in Act Three. And then comes a scene which stretches from uh, the 1994 election, which brings Newt Gingrich into power in Congress. When I wrote the book, I thought I, thought I was talking about a historical figure that, you know, I, I'd have to... <laughs> uh, period stretches from 1994 to 2006, the years of the Republican Congress. And what is interesting, I think, in retrospect about that whole period, is that in some ways, it replicated what happened earlier under Clinton. So Clinton, the Clinton plan was a grand design for change in healthcare. And Gingrich had a grand design as well. Uh, he wanted to reverse the whole development of the welfare state in the 20th century. He wanted to um, radically change uh, the Medicare and the Medicaid programs to eliminate the rights 
that the elderly and many of the poor enjoy under those programs. Uh, that didn't happen. Despite the fact that Republicans had control of the Congress and then after 2001 had control of the presidency, they were unable to carry through their grand design. They were frustrated also. And in the end, going into the period that led up to the election of Barack Obama, once again, we saw what had happened in the 80s and early 90s. Rising costs in healthcare, rising much faster than uh, wages, with a growing sense of failure of the whole system, of desperation of many people, the number of the uninsured un and underinsured increasing year by year. But then comes the third scene in Act Three, uh, the Obama years. We have to begin actually a little bit before that in order to, to, to understand why the Obama presidency unfolded differently from the Clinton presidency in this respect. Why Obama succeeded where Clinton failed. And a lot of that had to do with things that developed in the years immediately before Obama's election. So I mentioned before that under Clinton, there was no consensus about what to do. There was no agreement among Democrats or between Democrats and reform groups and interest groups of various kinds. Well, what happened in the period 2005, 2006, 2007 was the emergence of a growing consensus about a whole framework for reform. I call it minimally invasive reform. <laughs> there was a sense that you couldn't disturb the large number of people who had employment, employer-based insurance, many of whom had good insurance, and uh, you couldn't disturb a lot of the major interest groups uh, because if you did, uh, they would succeed in frustrating any reform effort. And so it, the, the reform had to be uh, uh, designed uh, so as uh, uh, to deal with the most urgent problems of the uninsured, to set in motion things that could eventually control costs, but you had to sidestep uh, the interest groups and the other public uh, uh, concerns uh, that had become uh, a problem in the previous efforts to reform healthcare. And the key person, I think, who helped crystallize the approach for minimally invasive reform was none other than Mitt Romney. It was the success that Romney had in Massachusetts in passing a program that relied on a health insurance exchange with subsidies for private insurance and an individual mandate, a design that came from um, uh, the Heritage Foundation, who provided advice to him. Um, and uh, in Act Three, we should have a scene um, with uh, Romney celebrating the passage of this legislation, flanked by prominent conservatives, uh, uh, saying what a tremendous achievement uh, this, uh, this was. And although many liberals were not entirely enthusiastic about uh, that approach, the idea was, well, okay, if we could get that through, if we could bring some conservatives on board, if we could get some Republican support, conservative Democrats and so forth, okay, that could be a basis for national reform. And uh, when you look at the proposals by the uh, Democratic um, uh, candidates in the primaries in 2007 and 2008, Hillary Clinton and John Edwards and Barack Obama, they all had different versions. There were, there were uh, some significant differences, but they were basically following this framework with the creation of health insurance exchanges and subsidies. And, um, oh, well, if you remember, Hillary Clinton had an individual mandate. But back then, Barack Obama did not. He thought that was a terrible idea during the primaries. Um, 
One of the reasons that I think 2009, 2010 turned out differently from 1993-94 is that um, many of the people who were involved in the last few years had been part of the earlier efforts. Um, and they knew how badly that one had ended. They had become uh, both more cautious and more determined. They were willing to make a lot more concessions. Now, I say that many were involved in 1993-94. Of course, there was one person who was not, and that was Barack Obama. He was new to the battle over health care. But the earlier experience, I think, had a big impact on him because he ran into Hillary Clinton on the way to the nomination. He had to debate her 21 times. And from the interviews that I did with people who advised Obama, he didn't actually know a lot about health care or have a great commitment to it uh, before the presidential campaign. I think the campaign had a huge impact on him because of this experience of debating Clinton and because so many of the constituency groups within the Democratic Party put healthcare on the agenda, uh, required that, uh, uh, that, that, that he address it. And by the end of that campaign, he had become fluent in the language of health policy, uh, and I think he had become much more committed to it than anybody would have had a right to expect um, beforehand. So, uh, we know what a roller coaster 2009, 2010 was. How many times it seemed like healthcare reform was going to go off the rails and careen and become a disaster. Uh, but, um, uh, but partly because of the commitment of the leadership, because of important changes within the Congress, so that in both the House and the Senate, the top leadership uh, was determined to make this happen, uh, the legislation passed. Um, I have many criticisms of this law, and I could spend a lot of time telling you about all the shortcomings uh, of the legislation. But before mentioning any of the shortcomings, I just want to emphasize what an achievement it was to pass this law, given the long history that preceded it and all of the obstacles that stood uh, in its way. You know, these days, with the use of the filibuster in the Senate, it's almost impossible to do anything in Washington. So it's a miracle that the Democrats, even though they could not get any Republicans on the bill, it's a miracle that they were able to get all 60 when they had 60 in order to pass it uh, in December of 2009. And you know, there's a lot of talk these days, and there should be a lot of talk, about inequality of income and wealth in this country. Well, this legislation is the most important legislation that we have had in decades that does something for Americans who are struggling in low-wage jobs and who have not had good health care as a fringe benefit. This is a major uh, uh, boost to the living standards of uh, millions of low-income Americans. It's not just the uh, 33 million, 34 million who will get health insurance for the first time. It's millions of others who will get subsidies for health insurance, whose health insurance will be improved as a result of this bill. Uh, all of those things, uh, I think, uh, uh, should be recognized as very significant accomplishments. And also the many changes that the legislation will bring about in the way that the health insurance market works so that it doesn't victimize people in the way that it has in the past. Now, as I said, there are many imperfections, but before uh, going into all those imperfections, uh, recognize what an achievement uh, this, uh, this was. Now, there are two things about the bill that I think, in retrospect, were very significant political mistakes, mistakes that are undermining the public's support for the legislation today. And I just want to say a little bit about uh, each, each one of these. Um, the law has a very long timetable for implementation, almost four years from when it was passed in March 2010. 
The major provisions don't go into effect until January 2014. Um, healthcare reform does not inherently require four years to carry out. We put Medicare into effect in one year. Massachusetts carried out its reforms in about a year. Um, there was an alternative. Um, it was an alternative that called for what, what's, what's known as a rolling start that would have allowed states to come in as they were ready. It would have provided a tremendous incentive for states to get up and running instead of dragging their feet, as so many of them are now, because the sooner they qualified, the sooner the money would come uh, to support the program. And um, uh, there are states, I think, I think California is probably one of them, I think Massachusetts is another, Vermont is another, Connecticut is another. These are the states that have uh, shown already uh, the most uh, eagerness and the most competence in carrying this forward. And um, there would be, I think, a very significant difference in public response if there were states that were already, or very soon, putting this into effect uh, so that come the 2012 election, this wouldn't still be something off in the future, but actually something with real results to show. Um, that, to me, was a, uh, a very unfortunate uh, 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 choice. Uh, it resulted from the budget concerns, primarily, not exclusively, concerns to keep down the cost, but the cost, to me, would have been well worth it. Um, the second aspect, uh, has to do with that provision, the individual mandate, um, which, as you know, is the focus of the legal challenges to the legislation and has become uh, the focus of political opposition and has dominated the national conversation about health care reform. The ironies are just overwhelming. After all, this was, to begin with, a Republican proposal. It was a proposal developed by the Heritage Foundation. It was carried out by a Republican governor, Mitt Romney. If there had been a Republican bill with an individual mandate in the early 90s, which I think there, it's not inconceivable that there would have been, I doubt there would have been the constitutional questions raised uh, as they are being raised now. No one raised them at that time. Nonetheless, this is a serious problem uh, uh, legally and politically. And I believe there were alternatives. And during the debate on the bill, I urged that, uh, and I only did this because of an experience I had um, uh, going on talk radio shows and getting calls by people who were angry about the individual mandate. And not all of these people were right-wingers. Some of them were just low-income people who said they couldn't afford health insurance. And when I'd say, well, there'll be subsidies in the bill, they just didn't believe it. They didn't trust the government. Lots of people who, who have low incomes just don't trust the government, don't believe the subsidies will be enough. So I concluded there needs to be some kind of, a, of an opt-out. I can tell you more details about this idea. But there needs to be some way to assure people that they would not be penalized for not having uh, health insurance. So um, those two aspects have, I think, uh, undermined the public support. On the one hand, you have a bill that is unloved by Democrats because it doesn't seem to live up to their expectation. And on the other hand, it's hated by Republicans. Unloved on one side, hated on the other. That's, <laughs> that's not a good recipe for uh, the long term, for carrying things out. But I strongly believe that um, this legislation should be sustained. I worry about what may happen um, in the event that uh, we go through a cycle of national frustration, having tried to address this problem and end up just repealing the law and canceling it all out. And I just want to read a little bit from the very end of this book. And of course, I don't want to tell you too much about the book because I want to give you a reason to buy it. <clears throat> Uh, the historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. once wrote that in a democracy, politics is about something more than the struggle for power or the manipulation of image. It is above all about the search for remedy. The search for a remedy to America's problems in healthcare has turned into a peculiarly arduous struggle, peculiar in its duration, its rancor, and its salience and centrality in national politics. And I just want to go to the end. 
Um, the difficulties in the search for remedy in health policy were not inevitable. At times, alternatives were in reach that could have provided insurance protection to all and kept costs closer to the level of other advanced nations. In 2010, Congress finally overcame the usual drumbeat of fear by the opponents of reform with moderate legislation that could help create a more just and efficient system. Repealing that law would not just mean denying insurance to more than 30 million people. It would be a confession of political helplessness in the face of a problem that has nagged at the national conscience for a century. The search for remedy would continue, but it would proceed under a shadow of uncertainty about whether Americans will ever be able to hold their fears in check and summon the elementary decency to the sick that characterizes other democracies. One of the big questions that I would like you to talk about is the role of the lobbyists that have played through that whole, all the acts that have been there, Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3, and what, what role you thought, think has changed the landscape of what's gone on. I'm sorry, the role of the lobbyists. The lobbyists. All the lobbyists from the AMA to the uh, insurance companies, all of them. Yes, yeah. The various interest groups um, were much more willing to go along with reform legislation in 2009 than they had been at any earlier point. And I think this was a crucial factor in passing legislation. I think many of them have come to the conclusion that the present insurance system, and I'm particularly thinking of um, uh, the insurance that is bought by individuals or by small businesses, that that market um, uh, is in danger of what people refer to as a death spiral. That as costs go up, um, healthier, younger people will no longer buy insurance, that will push costs up further, and so on. And they uh, uh, took the view, this is including some but not all in the insurance industry, um, there were splits within the insurance industry, but many of the other interest groups were willing to accept legislation that uh, would reform the insurance market, would create guaranteed issue, that is, uh, companies would have to give a policy regardless of the health of the beneficiary uh, and with, at a price that did not depend on their individual characteristics except with, you know, with, 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 with some exceptions, but, but they, they were willing to go along with a lot of change because, because they saw the problems as really threatening their businesses. So, um, so that, that was um, um, uh, a positive factor. Uh, what I say in the book, so that created, that helped to create a window for reform. But it wasn't that big a window. It, uh, uh, it's not that, that any kind of reform could be squeezed through that window. Uh, there were lots of constraints uh, that um, uh, both the Congress and the administration faced if they wanted to avoid a full-fledged opposition effort, for example, from the drug industry, from the hospital industry, and so forth. In the, in the end, the big commercial insurance companies did fight the passage of the law. They spent $80 million at the end trying to defeat it. Uh, but many of the other interest groups made their peace. There were deals. There was a lot, you know, there were, some of these created scandals. Uh, but that's, I don't think the legislation would have passed had it not, had it not been for those, for those deals. That, that is just uh, the reality of American politics. I wish it were different. Uh, but that is, you know, that is, that is, that is what happened. Since our... American businesses have to compete often with foreign businesses. And since foreign businesses don't have to pay for health care, since they are basically paid publicly or by the government, how is it that our businesses are not wondering how they're going to be able to compete in the uh -huh. open market unless there is some kind of public uh, med uh, medical health care? Well, many people have wondered why 
Um, my business has not been a more forceful advocate of reform. And many businesses, of course, have changed their own policies. They have adopted managed care, consumer-driven health care. There's been one fad after another. Um, I think many executives have become uh, very cynical about this because uh, these have not really succeeded uh, in controlling health care costs over the long run. And what a lot of businesses would like to do now is just make a fixed monetary contribution and not have to worry about the overall costs. Now, um, your question um, reflects an understanding of who ultimately pays the cost, which um, a lot of, economic, uh, of economists would disagree with. So I think what's implicit in your question is the idea that rising health care costs come out of profits. But I don't really think there's any evidence for that. The costs ultimately come out of wages. Uh, it's part of the total labor bill. Now, in the short run, it may be if there's a sudden spurt in costs, it may affect a company's profits. But over the long run, they take that out of wages. It affects the level of cash wages. And really what's been happening is that Although Americans, I don't really think, have a good understanding of this, is that the rise in healthcare costs has been making it uh, difficult for them to get increases in cash wages, and it's held down. It's held down the income they have for everything else. You're faced with implementing this law, uh -huh. and you described that uh, there were going to be a number of really difficult issues and difficult problems in the implementation. Could you tell us what you think some of them uh -huh. will be? Uh -huh. And perhaps it's, uh, it's in the nature of uh, uh, will there be real choice and competition at the, um, at the state level for plans that are offered? Or, uh -huh. you know, any other issues that you think are main uh -huh. and very difficult to resolve? and how you think they may work themselves out. Hmm. Okay, so what are going to be some, what are already some of the difficult um, uh, implementation issues? Um, uh, so one major question, so uh, you know, as, 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 um, as you know, uh, the legislation calls for the expansion of coverage in two different ways. One is to expand Medicaid and uh, the other, that, that's for people uh, with incomes um, near, the, near or below the poverty line. And the other is to create new health insurance exchanges where people who buy insurance individually or who uh, get insurance through a very small group will now be able to, to, um, to get a choice of health plans. So um, on the Medicaid side, there are some states that will be, which have had very small Medicaid programs, they're going to now see a huge increase, and, and they are going to face major problems. They don't really necessarily have the um, uh, administrative competence and so forth to deal with this and the, and, and, and the health care facilities and so forth. That, that's, that, that's one set of issues. Another has to do with, these, with, the new, uh, with the new health insurance exchanges. We do have some examples of working exchanges. Massachusetts has what it calls a health connector, a health insurance connector, and um, you can go online and you can find it. And um, uh, the, um, the development of the internet has, I think, m helped a lot to explain how something like this could work and could be very efficient. Um, I know in the early 90s, when we talked about the analogous idea, it was very hard to communicate how it would, how it would work. But you know, the Travelocity example is, you know, uh, is, is, is helpful. You know, you, you put in a few key facts, and you, as you could in Massachusetts, about your income and your age and so forth, and you, you get a variety of options, and you can, and you can make your choices. And... Um, uh, so there's going to be a need in many states to develop the technical competence to create uh, these exchanges organizationally, um, uh, to create the online resources. Um, 
the states vary tremendously, both in their willingness to do this, there's a lot of opposition in many parts of the country, and their, um, and their competence, their resources. Some of the small states really don't have the organizational resources to undertake this. Um, uh, it may well be that the, 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 uh, if a state doesn't do this itself, then the federal government is supposed to step in and establish an, ins an insurance exchange. And that was set up as a backstop. But I think it looks quite likely that that is what will happen in some states which can't reach agreement about how to establish an exchange. So here, here's another key question. How much bargaining does the exchange do? Is it just a place where plans are registered and offered? Or is the exchange involved in negotiating things that have to do with quality and accountability and other, and other things, and, and will it sometimes say to some plan, no, uh, we're not going to offer you because you do not meet the criteria. There are, uh, there's a range of, um, of alternatives here, and I think given all the opposition, the administration would be quite glad to go along with states implementing the exchanges in, uh, in substantially different ways. Uh, that would be, from, you know, by comparison with having the whole law overturned, that would, that would be preferable. But they're going to they're gonna face um, a, a lot of difficulty in setting up these new organizations. When, when the Medicare drug program was first introduced, um, it was passed in 2003, it didn't go effect until 2006. The initial implementation, I don't know if any of you remember this, was a, was a fiasco with uh, millions of the elderly not being able to get their prescriptions and um, reports in the newspapers of uh, uh, people suffering and in some cases deaths resulting because of the, of the um, uh, way in which it was carried out. That experience has, is one of the reasons why so much time has been left uh, for the states, this four-year period, uh, with the hope that, well, if they have all that time, then it's going to be set up appropriately and there won't be any interference in people's health care, there won't be any break in continuity. Uh, but um, so many states are dragging their feet that it looks like providing them all this time really, really is not achieving the intended purpose. How are we going to improve and give people actual health care when all of the legislation involves talk about health insurance, which, by the way, is going to be a $600 billion gift to the insurance industry under PPACA? We could just wait uh, and let the millions of people who uh, now don't have access um, uh, to coverage or care we could just let them uh, uh, remain in their present condition, or you know, we could try to do something about it. And um, uh, I believe that just as many of those European countries have been able to achieve a pretty decent system, even with private insurance, so it is possible in the United States. Now, it, um, what is a reasonable goal here? Um, and I think the, a reasonable goal is to try over the long term to turn those insurance companies into public utilities. Uh, highly regulated, uh, uh, they won't be as profitable as they may be now. Uh, they would be subject to a lot of rules uh, that uh, uh, would protect the rights of people who you're justly worried about. Uh, that to me is a, a reasonable expectation, you know, given all this history in the United States, you can't just unwind all that history, all the institutions that have developed. It's just, not, um, it's, it's just not possible. In fact, if you actually look at the history of these other countries, the way they developed their institutions, they tended to build on what they had before. The United States has gone so far down this road that it would require Americans to approve of something which I cannot think um, of another example of, and that is the nationalization, the expropriation of a very large private industry. So, you know, I, I don't see the historical basis for expecting that that's going to happen. You know, if we were back in the 1940s, that's what President Truman was, uh, was trying to pass. 
<clears throat> I would have been supporting him then. Um, it's not the way it worked out. So we work with what we've got. At least, at least some of us try to work with what we've got, and uh, you know, we try to make the best of it. You mentioned that one political error was to not have an opt-out pr provision. Um, so, so my question is, uh, how, how do you have an opt-out to an individual mandate? It seems like a, an oxymoron. But, but also, isn't the concern that um, if you have the opt-out, then all the healthy people are going to say, oh, I'm going to opt out, okay. um, and then it's going to raise uh, you know, the price for everyone else. Okay, right. First, you have to understand that the mandate in the law is really just a mandate in name only. There is no enforcement behind it. So Congress passed something that's called a mandate, and there are supposed to be fines if you don't have insurance. But what happens if you don't pay the fines? Nothing. Nothing. There are no penalties. There are no criminal penalties. There are no. There's no garnishing of wages. There's no liens on property. The law specifically rules out all the methods of collection that the IRS normally relies on. The the so there's a mandate, but as one of the court opinions said, it's a mandate that depends on voluntary compliance. <laughs> so that's a very interesting kind of mandate. So it's not. It people have the impression that this mandate is actually going to lead everybody to get insurance. It's, it's actually not going to lead everybody to get insurance. Uh, and I think, in fact, the, the estimates are way over what is going to happen. People will figure out that this mandate can be defied with impunity. Um, strangely enough, the mandate is both too strong and too soft. It's too it creates this uh, resistance and anxiety and opposition. It inflames people. But it actually may not work because there's nothing behind it. So, um, so I, I have proposed an alternative which um, I've had trouble explaining. I'm going to try to explain it. Uh, the idea is that um, you'd have three options. One is to get insurance, um, take advantage of the subsidies, the insurance exchanges, and so forth. Um, a second option would be to take, you'd fill out a form on your taxes saying that you were opting out. You'd be opting out from this law for five years means that you couldn't get the subsidies, you couldn't use the insurance exchanges, you wouldn't necessarily be able to get a policy that covered pre-existing conditions. You could try to buy insurance, but it would be like the insurance today. So you could, you could stay, that means you can't come in and out. The big worry that the, that the mandate answers is that people will only buy insurance when they're sick and then stop paying for it when they're healthy. So this would prevent that opportunistic coming in and coming out. And then I would have a third option. You could pay the penalties that the law prescribes, but then I would actually enforce the penalties. So it would be both a more libertarian and a more tough-minded option. More libertarian because there would be an opt-out, but more tough-minded because the penalties would actually be enforced. So um, uh, it would have... Um, there, there, there wouldn't have been a Supreme Court case, there wouldn't have been any litigation, because there would have, in effect, been no mandate. You could you can get out of it. Uh, and uh, I, I, this is what I was arguing when the law was under discussion. I was very worried about a backlash. Um, I, uh, uh, I didn't really think that the legal challenge would become as serious as it has. Uh, but, uh, but there we are. Um, this, this is one way to also to revise the law, either if the Supreme Court strikes down the mandate, this is one possible alternative. Um, uh, that can't be done now because Republicans are not going to cooperate in, in modifying the law to uh, nullify this constitutional challenge. Uh, but it might be possible, depending on the outcome of the 2012 election, uh, in 2013, there may be a renegotiation. I don't know that the odds are great, but there could be a renegotiation of the law and some alternative to this particular provision that has so much opposition. There's overwhelming public disapproval of the mandate. How can you really carry it out in light of all this public disapproval? And I think a lot of people, including many people who support the principle of the mandate, are really worried that in practice, Nobody is willing to impose the penalties that would carry out the mandate. As mentioned in, uh, by other people, other countries that have socialized medicine um, 
they have better health outcomes, but I think also there are some limitations on the types of healthcare that you can receive, especially in this country, considering end-of-life care costs so much, and most of the expenses over a person's life are accrued in their last six months of life. Do you think Americans in this country will ever accept any kind of external limitations on the types of care they can receive at any time, particularly in the last six months of their life? Uh, that, that suggests that the great cause of high health costs in the United States is that Americans are so demanding. They, they have so much higher standards than people in other countries. And I don't really think that is the explanation. Uh, actually, you know, Americans see physicians, um, Amer the number of physician visits per year is, is lower in the United States than in many European countries. Um, there are various other, the, the, the initial contact with the healthcare system is something that the consumer, the patient controls. But once you get in the hospital, once you're in the system, the decisions are really coming mostly from the physicians and, and other healthcare providers. People do have to agree to them, but, but the, the demand, this is the strange thing about healthcare, um, the demand is generated to a large extent by the suppliers. Uh, it's a very unusual market. And um, so we've had a number of studies of, of shared decision-making, where, where patients are more involved in making choices. And a lot of that, actually, in regard to end-of-life, indicates that, you know, actually, it, people don't necessarily want all of that care. It doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that costs are going to be higher. So, you know, I, I think it's quite possible um, to involve people in the decisions. I think it's possible also to have better information about the choices, better research on the outcomes, and, and that that can help us uh, to control costs. We're, we're doing so many things now that are ineffective and very costly. There are plenty of ways to achieve very substantial economies without harming uh, the quality of care. And, I mean, what, what the... Donald Berwick, who just stepped down as, as uh, the head of the Medicare program, has been arguing for years, is that, is that we can do a variety of things that can simultaneously improve quality and cut costs. And I, I think there's just this whole avenue to be developed. Example. Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay, well, um, okay, examples. Okay, well, that's one example. So uh, there are, uh, okay, there, there, there are, uh, there's evidence that there are um, uh, a variety of uh, uh, procedures, uh, uh, surgical procedures, back surgery, uh, uh, which cost Medicare over a billion dollars a year uh, that expose, that, that have been demonstrated not to be effective, that expose patients to various kinds of risks, and yet we keep paying for them. And we have to be able to reach a point where the research has demonstrated things are not effective to be able to say, no, these are things we're not going to pay for. If you want to pay for it, okay, but this is not something that, that, uh, that should be covered. And um, we had a very interesting um, uh, controversy recently, um, which um, um, uh, involved the... Um, the screening test for prostate cancer. Uh, so there is a uh, preventive services task force consisting of private sector scientists and doctors who evaluate various kinds of preventive procedures like the prostate cancer screening test. That commission does not consider cost at all. It only considers the health effects and that commission concluded after several very large studies that the prostate cancer screening test was doing no good. Now, there are some people who are helped, but there are also many other people who are harmed. Uh, uh, and they found on that on balance, there wasn't a net improvement in health. Now, it's very hard for people to recognize, especially when something has become widely established and become part of medical practice. And so uh, it's hard to unravel that and convince, well, actually, these things don't work. Um, we would be better off, and again, this wasn't even concerned with cost. It was just concerned with the net effects on health. 
and it found that it, it didn't achieve a reduction in suffering overall. Well, and yet there was a storm of opposition to it. This is so frustrating. I mean, we have to, uh, we have to let the evidence speak. And if it shows that things are not working, we should be willing to say, okay, now, now in this case, there are individual circumstances that could justify that test. Uh, and there may be other cases, but you know, should it be done as a routine procedure? That, that was the issue, and, and this commission was saying no. What is the Heritage Foundation's current assessment of the Massachusetts system, uh, especially the individual mandate, and how are they managing this? I know that one of the key people who developed the idea for the individual mandate and who wrote about it has now turned around and is denouncing it. Uh, and um, uh, I don't know, I haven't followed their latest um, uh, papers on the Massachusetts plan. I know initially and for the first period they were very positive about it. You know, it's, it's really amusing. I mean, this is an idea they ought to be proud of. <laughs> it's an idea that Mitt Romney ought to be proud of. Um, uh, he did say initially he thought it would be good for the whole country. So here we have a case where they uh, 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 gave birth to an idea and now they seem to want to kill their own baby. <laughs> and, and of course, their baby got adopted by the other side. <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's what bothers them about it, I guess. Uh, but it really, it really is... A shame. I, 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 I think it's really, you think about it. Here, Romney and Obama both had to make concessions to the other side to pass the legislation they, they did. Um, isn't that the kind of constructive compromise that Americans want? And yet now, Romney's ashamed of what he did. It's a burden for him in trying to get the Republican nomination. And Obama really isn't benefiting from having politically, that is, not benefiting from having passed the legislation. In a way, I think this is a sad commentary on what has happened in American politics, that they did what many people would like, make compromises, get something done, and yet it doesn't seem to pay off. And that is unfortunately where we are right now in this country. Thank you so much, and we'll see you at the reception.